From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Michael Gilday is in quarantine tonight after a member of his family tested positive for coronavirus. Gilday tested negative last week, but he'll stay isolated for at least one week. USNI News reports Chief of the National Guard Bureau, General Joseph Lengel, tested positive for the virus Saturday, but has since tested negative twice. The Navy wants to split up its program executive office for enterprise information systems. Digital and IT acquisitions will be in one office. Manpower, logistics and business solutions applications will take a different office. FedScoop reports both offices should be ready to go by August. Some Democrats in the House of Representatives want to expand the Federal Employee Paid Leave Act to include people who've had a new child this year. The new benefit should start at the new fiscal year. It would cover parents of children born after October 1st. Federal News Network reports the revised act would cover parents of children born after December 20th, 2019. The supply chain acts more like a supply web or a supply network, as Greg Giddens told you on this program yesterday. When the virus hits one part of the supply chain, the rest of it will feel the impact. Andrew Hunter is senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Andrew, what's your sense of the defense industrial-based supply chain and how companies are feeling this two, three, four layers down underneath the primes? Well, uh, Francis, your point is, is uh, your question is exactly on point, which is that the, the impacts right now are most profound on the supply chain, on the lower levels, smaller companies that don't have the financial cushion that the big primes have. Um, and also because they're kind of down the flow, down the chain, may not see the efforts that the Department of Defense is making, which are uh, pretty aggressive, to uh, address supply chain issues as rapidly. They have to wait a little longer for those accelerated payments to show up uh, and for other forms of assistance to reach them. Uh, so they're really bearing the brunt. Um, they're doing pretty well overall. Uh, DCMA has found that of about 22,000 uh, primes and suppliers that they track, only a little over 500 have actually closed at some point and, and several of those have reopened. So on the whole, the industry is doing pretty well, but, but my concern is about the kind of downstream consequences from the rest of the economy spilling over into the defense supply chain. I want to talk about that in a moment. Uh, Bruce Jetty, the lead acquisition official in the Army, was on the program on Sunday and talked about how for uh, maybe one of the first times, I'm paraphrasing his words, they're getting involved in the supply chain two or three or four layers down pretty aggressively, as you suggested. Is that a good thing? And what's, is there precedent for that? And should it continue? How long? I know there are a lot of questions there, but there are a lot of questions about this in the defense industrial base, too. Yeah, well, I think it's a necessary thing. Uh, I think good thing is, is something we're going to have to wait and see on, uh, and we may want to modify this going forward. But for the time being, I think it's absolutely the right policy for the department to be looking aggressively at the supply chain and trying to identify problems before they spike into huge issues, maybe not unlike uh, the response to the virus itself. You want to get out ahead of the problem, not wait for it to explode into a much bigger problem, which can happen very rapidly. And as you said, it can transmit through that a web of suppliers uh, and get out of control, uh, if not monitored pretty closely. So I think it is a necessary thing. It is a little unusual and uncomfortable for the department, uh, both from a you know size of government issue and also because 
And we aren't necessarily equipped to do this very well um, at the government level. The supply chain management has always been very disaggregated. We rely on the primes uh, to do that. But what gets missed in that sometimes are these cross-firm and cross-supply chain effects. And, and that's where I think the government needs to focus. One of the places that the government has focused, that DOD has focused, mostly in the office of the Secretary of Defense over the years, is on what the landscape looks like as far as mergers, acquisitions, and so on in the defense industrial base. What's your sense of how all of this might change that? Is it possible that uh, OSD might at least take more of an observational role in what's happening two or three, four lay uh, layers down in the DIB in that as well? or do you think they'll stay primarily focused on the top level, the prime level? Well, I, I think there's a few things going on there. Um, first of all, I, I know the department is very focused on who is trying to protect, perhaps penetrate defense supply chains. So they're worried about overseas uh, firms, particularly those uh, from China, making moves on defense suppliers uh, in the current situation. Uh, and there's some concern that that may in fact uh, be happening in certain instances. Uh, and, and certain target instances. So, so that's something they're keeping a close eye on, and I think that motivates them to pay a very close attention uh, to mergers and acquisitions. Uh, now, as I mentioned, though, it is very challenging for the department to do a lot of its supply chain management uh, of subcontractors on its own. Uh, the capacity simply uh, hasn't been built over time to do that. Uh, and that may actually lead the department to look favorably on acquisitions within uh, defense industry with uh, primes that are trusted suppliers. Uh, and if those primes were to integrate uh, their supply chains a little more vertically, uh, th that might actually be something the department would view with favor because it might simplify the management challenge uh, for them. And then just lastly, um, you know, in, in areas where we're trying to make a leap of technology, uh, as we see in, for example, future vertical lift, uh, and we're going to probably have to rework supply chains because the existing supply chains were built for a different kind of system, a different architecture altogether, you may see primes take on some roles there that they may have outsourced uh, on, on uh, older aircraft just until they can get that system where they need it to be for the new technology. Um, and, and that might be another thing that pushes a little bit of vertical integration. You mentioned earlier in our conversation, Andrew, you're concerned about some of the broader economic issues that the country's facing and how they might potentially impact the defense industrial base. What are those and what's the impact that you're worried about? Well, the number one is, is what's happening in the aerospace sector, the aviation sector, uh, the, the crashing uh, of uh, air traffic, uh, you know, down by more than 60% uh, in the United States. Uh, and depending on what part of the world you're looking at, similar, similar reductions overseas. That, that is you know, causing aircraft production to be paused uh, massive layoffs at Boeing, massive layoffs at GE Aviation. Airbus is having exactly the same problems. Uh, it's almost like a mirror image. So uh, you're seeing just immense impacts there. Uh, and that flows down very quickly in supply chain. Uh, and again, because those smaller suppliers don't have nearly the financial cushion that a Boeing or an Airbus has, uh, that they can't absorb that in anywhere near the same fashion. Well, a lot of those suppliers also supply Lockheed. They also supply Northrop Grumman. Uh, a lot of the parts, the piece parts, the fasteners, some of the structural elements are uh, are commercial items uh, originally designed for commercial aircraft, also on the on the electronics. So uh, that's where I see this spillover effect potentially having very serious consequences for the defense supply chain. Uh, and I'm not sure we've seen the full force of that yet.
Andrew Hunter, thanks very much. It's great to have you on the program again. Thank you, Francis. Up next, technology's role in the coronavirus response. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the new tech is helping and where industries headed next. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. This Industry Matters segment is brought to you by BDO. The coronavirus is driving innovation for both industry and its agency customers. Here to talk about how technology is changing the government's pandemic response, Carrie Smith, President and Chief Operating Officer at Parsons. Carrie, thanks for coming on. What are you seeing? How is innovation driving the response to the pandemic? And how specifically does a company strategize innovation to help customers in government? Thank you, Francis, for having me on today. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with Government Matters. I'd like to use an example that we did during the corona period. Once when the virus hit, we realized it was imperative that we get solutions out that can help people today during the crisis, but also that we could look forward to solutions that can help us post-crisis. So we solicited across our entire employee population for ideas. And then we bucket those ideas into three campaign focus areas. One was focused on integrated screening and testing. One was focused on biosurveillance. And a third area was focused on digital transformation. What does biosurveillance mean and how does it apply to the way that agencies are responding to this, Carrie? We formed a partnership with Fraunhofer USA. And in our partnership, we're developing what's called a diamond electrode biosensor. And this sensor has the capability to test for the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which is the virus that causes the corona or the COVID-19. We're really excited about this partnership. From a person's perspective, we're leveraging our infectious disease history, our ability to do sensor integration, as well as our capabilities in microelectronics packaging and fabrication. And then Fraunhofer is a research institute that has the capability for the electrode itself to be able to test for the COVID. We hope to bring this to market in the upcoming months as a commercial product offering. The digital transformation piece that you mentioned a moment ago, Carrie, is interesting to me because when Suzette Kent was on this program, it's been two weeks or so ago now, she talked about this pandemic response as an opportunity. And it strikes me that a lot of people are, are taking heed of that and are trying to figure out ways to leverage the situation that we're in because of the pandemic, terrible as it is, to their benefit. What does that mean in the digital transformation realm, do you think? So first for us at Parsons, what we wanted to do is make sure that our workforce could work remotely. So today we have over 90% of our employees that have the capability to perform telework. We've also been working with our government customers to help them facilitate telework as well to keep our employees working. But I would say post pandemic, we're gonna have a virtual world. One area that we've been involved in is virtual transportation management centers. We have a product that's called the Intelligent Network, which does advanced traffic management. Instead of having people which would typically sit in a control room, monitor traffic, look at variable message signs, look at traffic lights, these people are now enabled through computers and networks to be able to remotely manage their traffic operations. This greatly improves safety and takes care of their health. 
And if you take it a step further, you can also virtualize security operation centers or emergency operation centers for areas like utility companies. All of this response means, I think, that the world is going to look dramatically different in the, the business of government six months from now, two years from now, five years from now. What do you think the most dramatic differences are, both for a company like yours and for the customers that you serve, Carrie? I think the biggest differences are how we go about our day-to-day -day lives. And what we're trying to do at Parsons is satisfy our mission, which is to deliver a better world. So if you think about going to a sporting event or you think about going to an airport, the whole situation is going to be different than what it is today. That's why we've rolled out our DetectWise suite of products. So that's basically an integrated touchless screening system and testing system. If you think about going to an airport, now you may be walking up to a kiosk where you're going to have your temperature tested. You're going to have your heart rate tested. You're going to have your respiratory symptoms tested to see if you show any symptoms. Then if you do show symptoms, you can go into our DetectWise mobile laboratory where you'll be tested for COVID itself. This will help ensure that people as they get on board planes or as they enter a sporting arena are not demonstrating symptoms that could be uh, related to coronavirus or another type of virus. Carrie, as you look at the information that you get on a daily basis as a leader of this company, what do you think is the main difference in the way that your company will serve government agencies differently because of this? Is it just the fact that both your employees and a lot of the customers that you serve will be working remotely? Or are there other things that you think will be dramatically different in the future? So I'd say our, our culture is one of agility, innovation, collaboration, and disruptiveness. And when you have a crisis such as COVID that hits, you need a company that can quickly come to the table, be responsive, and provide solutions now. And that's what I believe Parsons is able to do. By leveraging all of our employees, the entire employee population, through open sourcing ideas, we came up with hundreds of areas that we felt we could help our customers. And the ones that I mentioned today are just a few. But for us, it's all about responsiveness and meeting our customers' needs, whether those are customers in government buildings or their customers in airports or rail and transit. Carrie Smith of Parsons, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you on the program. Thank you very much, Francis. We appreciate it. Up next, looking ahead to life after COVID-19, straight ahead on Government Matters, how to reopen your office equitably and efficiently. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Agencies are starting to release their reopening plans and they're working to prepare to bring employees back to the office. One aspect of that is how the coronavirus has hit different demographic groups differently. Terry Gertens, president and CEO of the National Academy of Public Administration. Terry, thanks very much for coming on. You're the first person that I've talked to about this concept of reopening equitably. What's that mean exactly? What are you thinking about when you use that term? Well, one of the things that we know, Francis, and you can read it in every headline, is that the, the pandemic has hit demographic groups very, very differently. 
And so as communities and, and local governments and state governments are thinking about reopening, equity has to be front and center of every consideration that they're, that they're um, looking at. Everything from access to uh, you know, public transportation, to internet access, to who comes back to work, to who's really essential, what the um, employment impacts are across different communities, what the health impacts are. It affects everything that we do. All of those factors strike me too as tremendously important and difficult to prioritize and manage when you're thinking about who you bring back and whether you even bring back some people at all. There are some agencies that are talking about, we might just stay in this mode perpetually because it seems to be working fine. And I wonder what that looks like and how someone sitting in a manager's seat, is it a matrix or how do you go about actually structurally um, putting all the factors that you need on a map to make those decisions? Well, one of the first things that community governments um, or, or any level of government can do is make sure there's somebody at the table that's asking those kinds of questions, asking questions about, well, if we take that step, if we reopen that office, if we reopen that transportation network, how is that going to affect all of our different communities? Have someone that asks, have we reached to all of those communities in the language that they speak? Do we have someone that's a community advocate that's out there actually speaking to people so that we're hearing what their concerns are um, and so that we're taking into account the different um, impacts and expectations of the communities regarding the different opening processes? I think one example of it is Mayor Bowser in D.C., who's made equity one of the four pillars of her reopening strategy, making sure that as we make these choices, we're thinking about the specific um, and very different communities inside that government and how each choice is going to affect them. What do you think should go into the reopening strategy when it comes to deciding who to bring back to the office and who to keep uh, working remotely? And I'm not talking about the logistics, technology, all of that stuff. I'm talking about the decision-making process and the cultural management because as we've talked about any number of times, the discussion about uh, essential and non-essential and the shutdown, for example, there's a mindset that it presents to people that, well, I guess they don't need me that bad if, I, if they're going to furlough me during a shutdown and that kind of thing. Managing around, that's kind of what I'm getting at, Terry. <clears throat> well, there's certainly given us a new perspective about what's essential, hasn't it? Um, everything from public uh, transportation bus drivers to um, uh, food inspectors and scientists, we have a whole different idea about what kind of work needs to be done in person and what kind of work has uh, can be done remotely. But we're going to have to think through people's uh, health considerations, their own and those of their family. We're going to have to think through childcare arrangements and what sort of provisions we need to make so that people can stay home with their children if schools and daycares aren't open. We're going to have to think about who has to commute in um, and when and what off-cycle hours might look like. And those are very different for very different kinds of positions. I think it's encouraging to see that, um, especially at the federal level, where folks often had work that they thought simply couldn't be done remotely, are finding ways to do it remotely because um, necessity really is the mother of invention. I'm going to put you back uh, in one of your old jobs and you're sitting in one of these very high level offices on Constitution Avenue or the other side of the mall and you're thinking, what does the next normal look like six months from now, 
a year from now, three years from now? What are the building blocks beyond equity of figuring out what that looks like, Terry? Well, um, as terrible as the impacts of the crisis are, one of the things um, that's sort of a silver lining is the opportunity to really re-engineer the work. Um, and so as um, government officials at any level are thinking about what that new normal looks like, um, and they're facing serious financial constraints at every level as well, there's the chance to fundamentally rethink how work gets done. Um, your old vested interests, your old ways of doing things don't have to persist. And so how can you really make modern change, right? How can you bring on new um, customer-facing tools that it, uh, en enhance your customer experience? How do you make life easier for your employees? How do you re-engineer work in a new environment so that it's much more effective? It's expensive to do that, but it's, as we're seeing right now, very expensive not to do it. And so there is a real opportunity here for public administrators at every level of government to really rethink how we do it to create a better and more functional and more affordable system of government going forward. We have less than 30 seconds, but I love that term, re-engineer the work. You mean that as a proactive term and not a reactive term, don't you, Terry? Absolutely. Thinking about how we do our work better and more efficiently and making it better for the customer. Terry Gurton, thanks very much as always. Pleasure, Francis. Thank you. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.